Oh, reason I'm doing another episode is because I completely forgot to announce that yet another person has lost their bang virginity. Yesterday, Sunday, December 5th, had to look to see what date it was, but yesterday, December 5th, 2021, my dear friend Cameron, my brother Cameron, one of my favorite people, lost his bang virginity. So that's yet another person who has drank bang, who has gotten banged at my urging. I'm letting everybody know, telling everybody the benefits of bang, because I'm Mr. Bang. And he lost his bang virginity to a can of black cherry vanilla. Very medicinal flavor. Black cherry vanilla is a good one. It's very medicinal. Tastes medicinal, and it has medicinal properties. So if you find yourself with coronavirus, if you find yourself feeling under the weather, get a can of black cherry vanilla bang and enjoy its medicinal properties. Hasn't really hit the airwaves yet. There's a lot of controversy over alternative methods of treating coronavirus, but you heard it here first that black cherry vanilla bang is very helpful helps keep the coronavirus in check, but Cameron mentioned to me that he drank that one, and I said, that's a good flavor, that's a good flavor, but I said, the best flavors are Miami Cola, which is very rare, you can only find it at select gas stations, I've never seen a single grocery store stock Miami Cola flavor, I don't know why that is, I I think it's one of these things like the algorithm, The algorithm, for whatever reason, does not allow Bang to be stocked in, or sorry, excuse me, the algorithm does not allow Miami Cola flavor Bang to be stocked in grocery stores and only select gas stations. You won't find it at just any. I don't know exactly how and why Miami Cola appears where it appears, but it is limited. It is rare. But I told him the best flavors, I was like, black cherry vanilla, that's a good one. The best flavors of Miami Cola, Cherry Blade Lemonade, and uh, Power Punch. Oh, and also Blue Raz and uh, Blue Raz and Star Blast. And as I joked to him, I was like, I should just list the flavors that aren't good. Because I just told you five flavors that are great. I just told you my five favorite flavors. I've had a lot of them. There's a few flavors I haven't had. I've had cotton candy. I've had some sort of lemonade flavor. I know they have rainbow Skittles. I believe there's a rainbow Skittles flavor. And there's also a purple Skittles. That's how it's spelled. Z-K-I-T-T-L-E-Z. It's called purple Skittles. I didn't know that purple Skittles, like purple Skittles are good. But I didn't know they were so good that Bang would make an entire flavor based around purple Skittles. And what's interesting about the purple Skittles flavor is it comes in a red, white, and blue can with a jet plane on it, with an American jet fighter on it. So purple Skittles, for whatever reason, they thought that would lend itself to a patriotic jet fighter can. And I I honestly can't disagree. I say that without any irony. Um... But, uh, you know, there's a pina colada flavor that I haven't had, and I don't see myself seeking that out. There's a purple grape, 
not to be confused with purple Skittles. There's a purple grape sort of flavor I've had, which isn't bad. It does kind of taste like orange, or it does kind of taste like grape soda or something like that. But I've had quite a few of the flavors. I haven't had them all. You know, artificial pina colada is so disgusting to me that I don't see myself having that. But I do, if I want to earn all of my Bang merit badges, if I truly want to be Mr. Bang, I already feel like I am Mr. Bang, but if I want to be the best Mr. Bang, I feel like I've got to go for the pina colada too. I've got to go for the flavors that don't necessarily appeal to me. But when you're in the store and you're looking at that array of Bang cans and you see Cherry Blade Lemonade, if, if they have Miami Cola, Miami Cola, when you see flavors like that, it's just your hand just goes to them. It's very difficult to guide your hand to pina colada. But uh, we always, you know, for the foreseeable future, please let me know if you have lost your bang virginity and you will get a little announcement here. You'll get a little announcement here. Ideally, I want to live in a world where there are bang incels. I want to... I, I want I want to live in a world where bang is so desirable that there are bang incels, which is to say people who want bang, but they don't have it in their area. Their local stores don't carry bang and they want it desperately. And it disfigures them internally, so they become bang incels. I want there to be bang incels. Bang incels? What's a banging cell? You've never heard of a banging cell? A banging cell. But uh, in just completely embarrassing news, but yet I feel some level of pride because it's happened so rarely to me as an adult. I pissed my pants tonight. I went on a walk. I, I purchased not a bang, but I purchased a cherry Pepsi Zero. And I think they're calling it sugar-free Pepsi now, but it's the same thing as Pepsi Zero. Or Max Pepsi Max. Coke Zero. I believe Pepsi Max is now calling itself Pepsi Sugar Free. Pretty sure that's what it's calling it. But I got a Cherry Pepsi Max, aka Sugar Free. Drank most of that. And you know, to be honest, like I, I have to go all the time these days. I think I just have so many fluids going into my body. Like I thought I had a health issue for a while, and yeah, this is too much information. I think it's just enough information, but, uh, you know, maybe this is too much information, but I find that I have to go all the time in recent years, and I thought I might have had a health problem or something, but I think it's just that I'm pretty much from the time I wake up, I'm consuming liquid, I'm consuming a lot of caffeine, so I think that's the issue. Sometimes I really have to go, and I'm pretty good at holding it. Like, I can have to go, you know, sometimes I'm doing an episode of this, and I have to go, and I can hold it two hours, but... I really had to go to the point where I was clutching my crotch, a crotch clutch, as I walked home. And I was like, I'll be able to make it. I'll be able to make it home. And as I got nearer to my house, I was like, I feel like if I stop to get my key out and unlock the front door that I'm just going to go. I feel like if I do anything to untense my body, I'm going to go. And so I actually decided to go around the side of my house and just do it there because I did not think, because there's a, a thing your body does too, where when you get near your house, like I've actually heard this, that a lot of people piss their pants when they're driving as they get close to their house. It's for the same reason that more car accidents happen near home. 
because it's like you relax when you're closer to home. And on top of that, you, you also know if you have to go to the bathroom, you know that it's near. You know the place where you go to the bathroom is near. So it actually gets more difficult to hold it as your house comes into view. And so that's what I was feeling. And so I, I snuck around to the side of my house because my next door neighbors, nobody's lived there since last April. What's funny is when it went up for sale, I said to myself, I was like, I bet that's going to be one of those Black Rock houses. And if you're not familiar, there's this investment firm. I thought it was a, a conspiracy theory. I thought it was a conspiracy or something. I thought it was just a rumor that these investment firms are buying up all these houses. They don't rent them out. They don't take care of them. They just buy them apparently as an investment. And I don't know all the ins and outs. It's not interesting enough to me to really learn what they're doing. But apparently it's happening all over, especially the West Coast. It apparently started in California, but it's now happening all over the place where these investment firms like BlackRock are buying up all this real estate, not renting it out. Nobody's living there, and they just leave the houses unattended. And I believe that's what's going on next door because the people moved out last April. It sold within a month. And the rumor, another one of my neighbors told me, oh, some guy in California allegedly bought it and he was supposed to move in two weeks later. And here we are seven months later. However long it's been. It'll be eight months at the end of this month. And not only has nobody moved in, nobody's taken care of it. They shut off the power. I see that the door has had a bunch of uh, notices from the power company, and one of them blew over to me. I didn't open it, but I could see that it was some sort of warning in red from the power company saying, I think they shut off the power. And the garage has been left open. The garage has been open since, I think, June. And it's open just a crack, but it's still open. And it's the middle of winter. I mean, I guess not. It's, it's, it's actually not the middle of winter. It's not even officially winter yet. But, you know, by the time December's here, see, that's the thing is I don't follow the seasons. It's December. It's incredibly cold. It's winter as far as I'm concerned. This is not fall. I've never once felt that the month of December is fall. I think winter begins after Thanksgiving, at least in this part of the country. But anyway, so nobody's next door. I believe that BlackRock bought it. I kind of joked around that they were going to buy it. And sure enough, it's been completely empty. I kind of had this premonition that it was going to stay empty. And it's a desirable house. It's a nice house. But it's been completely empty and the garage has been left slightly open. Which tells me nobody's even looking after it at all. It's going to have rats if it doesn't already. I'm sure it has rats. But anyway, because of that, I went down the side of my house that goes between that house and, and my house. And I, I was like, I'm just going to go here. I couldn't make it. Right as I was getting to the spot where I was going to go, it just happened. I started going. And so I pissed my pants today. And it was not bang-induced. I would tell you if it was. I didn't drink too much bang energy drink. It was a Pepsi product combined with all the other stuff I've been drinking all day. But I pissed my pants. It's official. Like, I looked down afterward because, like, you don't really know how much you got on you. Like, I could tell that I, I definitely, I, I knew that I pissed my pants. 
but I couldn't quite tell whether it was just a little bit or a lot. And I looked down, and it's the sort of thing where if I'd walked into a public place, they would know right away. There was no question. So you're hearing me with a little bit of humility, but I think it's more pride. I'm kind of proud. I'm kind of proud that I pissed my pants in a weird way. But uh, moving along here, I just wanted to let you know. It's not that it happens to the best of us. It's that that's what makes us the best of us. It's pissing our pants that makes us the best. So yeah, it happens to the best of us, but it's pissing our pants that makes us the best. But I was thinking about Norm MacDonald. You know, he's been on my mind since he died because I was a fan of him. And I was listening to an interview last night, a new interview with one of his friends, just a comedian I'd never really heard of. His name doesn't matter. He's not Norm MacDonald. He's not Norm MacDonald. His name doesn't matter. But um, he was talking about how, you know, it was well known when Norm MacDonald died that his illness was a total mystery to everybody. He'd been fighting cancer for years, and he hadn't told anybody, apparently. Maybe there's one person out there, but all of his closest friends had no idea. And this guy was apparently a close friend of Norm. And he said he had no idea that Norm had cancer. And this went back years. It wasn't all of a sudden. This is something that Norm had been getting treatment for and everything going back years. So that's very interesting when someone does that. I know Bill Hicks did something similar. I referenced him on a recent episode briefly. But I know that Bill Hicks had something similar happen where he got cancer and didn't tell anybody, including his closest friends. There was a story where... I guess every year Bill Hicks and his friends would go on a camping trip where they would party and just sit around the campfire. And just a short time before he died, they went on that camping trip. And apparently at that point, he knew he was going to die. And even then, he didn't tell his friends. He just partied and had a good time with his buddies as normal. Like he didn't want to sour the trip and make it somber. He just wanted to have like one last good time without that being in the air. There's something noble about that, and I've been trying to think about what that is. I've been trying to think of what's so noble about these guys who got cancer, had serious health problems that killed them, and didn't tell a soul. And it's so hard not to. It's so hard not to tell people about things. You know, there's, there's almost like this gravitational pull when something is going on with you where you want to tell people. With me, it's not so much health issues. Like, I will tell people, like, I had an issue earlier this year. I mean, I'm already talking about pissing my pants, so why not just mention it? But I had this issue for about a month where one of my testicles just ached. Just this just severe ache. Like, it was actually painful and throbbing. And then it sort of moved up into my pelvic area. It was just very sore and painful. And I had to have a, uh, an ultrasound on it. And they didn't find anything. And when you're in that position, your mind is like, I guess I have testicular cancer. I don't know what, what that feels like. But it was, just, it was one of those sorts of feelings. And uh, you know, I told some people, I told some family members and stuff. And I was met with mostly indifference. People didn't seem too concerned. I mean, I've noticed there's people are very concerned with themselves right now. And I don't say that in an in, in a resentful way because I'm the same way. I can't resent the way I am when I see it in other people. 
But it's one of those things where I guess, uh, you know, maybe people just don't know how to respond. Like, it's one thing if you tell them, like, I, I was diagnosed with this. But when you tell people that you just have some sort of general ailment that you haven't quite figured out, I find that I just, I get indifference. It doesn't seem like people are too concerned. I don't know. But I still felt the need to tell people. I don't know what that is. Maybe it's, you know, I'm alone. You know, I live alone. I have no family in the area. Maybe that's part of it, is just like wanting to include them in case there's an emergency or anything. You know, since my mom died, I'm very much alone in many ways. And uh, I, don't, I don't say that in a sad way. I just, it's a reality when it comes to certain practical matters. <laughs> but it's, you know, there's a strong need, especially in our culture now, to announce your health problems. And Bill Hicks died before the internet and social media had taken over. So he lived in a completely different time. But, you know, Norm MacDonald lived in a time where when someone is diagnosed with cancer, there's headlines about it. If a celebrity is diagnosed with even a minor illness, even if they just have a disorder or something, something that really doesn't affect their interaction with the public, it's this big announcement and they talk about it and it's this emotional thing. They go on Oprah or something, but I was trying to think about what's so noble about these guys who are able to keep it to themselves. One, I guess it's just the discipline of that, having the discipline to keep a fatal health issue to themselves. It does seem noble. It's not that not doing that isn't noble. But I think part of it is just that there is such a gravitational pull to make announcements to be very public, even if you're not a public figure, because I know a lot of people who have turned health issues almost into a brand, where it's, it's part of their brand. Even if they're not famous, even if they don't have a real brand, like the way they engage with their friends and family on social media revolves around some sort of health issue. And I, I, I don't say that to knock them. But something doesn't entirely feel right about it either. You know, I know some people are looking for support. But sometimes it does almost feel like it's, it's building some sort of brand. I mean, it does kind of play into what I talk about, where people think they need to have an adversity story. We live in a world where people define themselves based on these stories of adversity. Oh, look at what I overcame. And health issues are a major thing to overcome, so I'm not trivializing it. But I think that adds to the gravitational pull to talk about it, to announce it, to remind people of it. And so when you have guys like Norm MacDonald or Bill Hicks who do the opposite, you kind of go, huh, that's interesting. That's admirable in some strange way. That they just kept it to themselves. And the fact that you can even do that, too, I think is part of it. The fact that, you know what, you can do that. You can keep it to yourself. It's, I don't know, it kind of plays into maybe some of what I've been, ta- what I've been talking about, the idea of dying with grace, not shrieking up to the point of death. To me, it shows a very healthy relationship with death. I don't know what those guys thought. I don't know what they thought of when they knew they were going to die. But the fact that they didn't make it a public affair 
to me, that indicates that they had a, a healthy understanding of their own mortality and faced it stoically, because that's very stoic. I mean, I think that defines stoicism. When you get away from the philosophy of stoicism, that's as stoic as it gets. But yeah, there's, there's a pull to things like that, though. I think about quitting drinking, which I admit that I, I talk about it more than I would like. And every time I talk about it, I get kind of a, a pain in my stomach. I feel very self-conscious. Not because I'm embarrassed about having had a drinking problem. Not that I feel, any, not that I feel strange about making the decision to quit drinking. But I almost feel like I'm milking it. I almost feel like I'm using it. And the more time passes, the less I even want to talk about it. The less I even feel like it's a part of my identity at all. Alcohol just feels foreign to me at this point. You know, and last week, I guess, was the four-year anniversary of quitting drinking. I was aware of it. I was aware of it. That four years ago on this day, I guess it was November... I guess November 28th, I think, was the last time I ever drank, 2017. I was aware of it that day, but I didn't do anything. I didn't say anything. And occasionally, I know I mentioned it on here. I'll mention, oh, that was back when I still drank, or, you know, I'll mention just the process of quitting. I have mixed feelings on that, because I did get a response from one person about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, a girl I used to work with didn't drink with her a lot but she would occasionally have drinks with us she messaged me about a year year and a half ago and she said i just want to let you know that like you know you what you said and this this feels very self-congratulatory again that pain in the stomach but she said like oh you know you know what you've said about quitting drinking and all that you know it really you know helped inspire me to quit and that's the sort of thing that makes you want to be more vocal about it. When someone says, oh, something you said about your experience encouraged me to make a similar decision. And more importantly, what she said was, um, she said, uh, like, deep inside, I could, like, like, her own voice was telling her to do it. And that's what it was for me. Like, my intuition was telling me I had to quit drinking. It wasn't that I saw or, you know, it wasn't that I learned anything new about alcohol or my consumption of it that made me quit. Certainly, my experience with it was getting worse. But it was intuitive. I knew intuitively I had to quit doing it. And here, I was just talking about how I don't want to talk about it, and here I am, but... What makes me question whether or not I should is that somebody did say that it impacted them in some way to hear me mention it but it feels cheap to do it and uh you know last year my uncle gave me my grandpa's 40 year aa coin and my grandpa apparently was very helpful i mean he died in his late 90s and he had been sober for i believe 45 years And my uncle was telling me how some of the men from the AA group would come visit him up on the island, even when he was in retirement, you know, when he retired to the island. And so my grandpa was still an inspiration to people in AA up until his death. The fact that he was able to do it for so long. Once he quit, he quit. But he also said that my grandpa was very humble about it and didn't talk about it. And I think that kind of plays into the nature of AA. Although, 
I've known some people in AA who just do not shut up about it. It's become this whole new identity of theirs. Their life seems to still revolve around alcohol. And they almost take on this sort of... What's her name? Like, what's the, what's the women's group who used to destroy bottles of alcohol? They almost become that. They almost take on this prohibition mindset. Like, there's a friend of mine who quit drinking a couple years before me, and she and I used to drink together a lot. And I respect her. She's a smart person. But uh, our, our take, and, like, and to be honest, I had a far worse drinking problem. And I don't say that in a competitive way. I just say it's the truth. And the thing is, though, like, it's just clear that we don't see eye to eye on drinking because it's like I still have fond memories of alcohol. I still have very fond memories, and I would never denounce alcohol. It stopped working for me. It was causing me to deteriorate. It was causing me a lot of grief, to be honest. But I would never denounce the fun I had. I would never practice some kind of alcohol revisionism where I look back at all my years drinking and think, oh, it was all bad. And I've noticed with this friend, it's like, maybe it's what she has to tell herself in order to stay away from it. But it seems like she won't allow herself the truth, which is that she had plenty of great times. And that's her experience to decide, you know, she can decide how she feels about that. But I guess it's more powerful to me to say it wasn't a total waste of time. I got a lot out of drinking. I met a lot of people. I had a lot of fun. I would never look back and revise my history and say that it was all a waste of time or all bad, all destructive. And I mean, you know, that, that is what it is. But anyway, you know, there's this gravitational pull to talk about it. And that gravity just pulled me right now into going on about it. But it just feels foreign to do that. And it seems to be better just to talk about it as little as possible. You know, if it comes up naturally, it comes up. If someone asks about it, if someone asks if I want to drink. And that's a difference, too, is like, you know, when I first quit drinking, like if somebody would be like, do you want to drink? I'd be like, oh, no, I don't do it. Oh, I quit. Now I'd probably just say, oh, no, thanks. Why make more out of it than you have to? Why turn it into a conversation, especially if that person still drinks? Someone who still drinks doesn't want to talk to you about how you quit drinking. And if you consistently turn down drinks, well, maybe they'll eventually inquire. But it's not something that needs to be a part of the conversation. It's kind of narcissistic, actually. All you have to say is, no, thanks. And if they push it on you, well, then they're being an asshole and you can tell them, I quit drinking. Leave me, leave me alone. You just leave me alone. You know, you can say whatever you want to him at that point. Whenever someone gets pushy, all bets are off. But I haven't really faced that. But uh, it does feel like milking something. It does feel like, like I have said things on social media or about it. When I first did it, I waited a little while. I think I waited about a month just to make sure it was something that I was truly deciding to do. And I made kind of a little statement about it. I felt the need to is also because at that point, a lot of my social life revolved around drinking. And so it was kind of a way of making it easy where it's like anybody who could potentially see this will know not to invite me out for a beer. 
not to invite me out for some whiskey, whatever it is we would do. So it made it, it was a matter of convenience above all else. Oh, hey, just by the way, I'm not going to do this anymore. And the people who read this should know it. But as four years have gone by, which is not nothing, you know, it's not five years, it's not 10 years, it's not 30 years, but four years isn't nothing either. But I thought about it last week and I was just like, do I want to say something about that? Do I want to tell somebody, oh, it's been this many days, this many, it's been this many years, this many days, this many minutes, this many seconds. The song of the alcoholic, the former alcoholic. We call that, we call this the song of the former alcoholic. This many days, this many minutes, this many seconds, this many milliseconds. And if that if that gives you power, do it. It's kind of like Fitbits. I feel the same way about that stuff as I do Fitbits. Where it's like, if you have to like count your steps to lose weight or stay in shape and that works for you, nothing I can, nothing I say or do can take that away from you. And I would never say you're lesser for using that method. If a Fitbit is what it takes to give you a sense of accomplishment, to instill discipline in you, well, you know if it's working or not. But personally, I would never want to use a Fitbit. And just in fitness in general, I would never want to be one of these guys who's typing my calorie intake into a spreadsheet. Oh, I ate this many grams of protein. I ate this many, uh, the, I ate this much fat. You know, I would never want to be somebody who's typing all of my macros into a spreadsheet. That just sort of takes away the motivation for me to do it. It's not the way I want to approach fitness. It's not that I don't consider some of those things at all, but I would never want to be someone who's like typing that shit into a computer. I never want to be someone who's counting my steps. If it works for you, you know that that works for you. I'm not denouncing it, but that's my approach. And I feel the same way about like counting the days and hours. Like I will always remember the day that I quit drinking. I'll always know what day that was. But in terms of measuring the amount of time, it just doesn't matter to me. It's sort of a gamification of it. And the less I think about that kind of stuff, the better off I feel. Because that was the goal. The goal is just to not have a relationship with it at all. To reach a point where it just feels like a foreign substance. And that's kind of how it feels now. And I say that without any confidence or not without any confidence, but just without any arrogance. I don't want to be so audacious that, oh, it doesn't even look like, I don't even know what alcohol is anymore. I don't even know what alcohol, I don't even know what alcohol is anymore. I don't, I don't want to reach that point. I don't want to be arrogant and assume that I've mastered the game or anything like that. But the more distant and foreign it feels, the better. The less I feel anything about it, the better. And that plays into not making it part of me, not making it part of my brand, not reminding people all the time. Because I know somebody who went through a major health crisis some years back, and fortunately it worked out well. I care about this person. I'm so glad that it turned out the way it turned out. But I mean, one of the reasons why there is this gravitational pull to talk about these things, to talk about things you've overcome, to talk about things you've been through, 
is that you get a lot of feedback, especially in our current age. You get a lot of people saying, oh, you go. Oh, you can do this. Get it. Dude, you rule. And you get a lot of people saying, making encouraging comments, and that's great. If that's what you need, that's what you need. That's like counting your steps or something. If announcing something gets you support, and if that support encourages you or makes you feel better, there's nothing wrong with that. But to me, it's not really that much different than like counting your steps through a Fitbit. If it, 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 I don't even know if Fitbit's the thing that counts your steps. I got 12,000 steps today. I don't even know if that's the same thing, but it's all the same to me. But it kind of feels that way. It feels cheap in some way to me. And maybe I would feel differently in a different situation. Maybe I would feel differently if I were going through something else. But it kind of plays into my mom dying as well, where I like to talk about it because it's interesting. I like to talk about my mom's death because it's interesting. I don't bring it up because I want support or some sort of condolences. If I want that, I'll look for it. But it's like, it's just very, it's one of the most interesting things that's ever happened. So, but the reason why I'm sometimes hesitant to talk about it is because some people deal with grief some people deal with loss by getting as much support as possible. And good for them for doing that if that's what they need. But it kind of sucks when I just want to talk about it as an idea. No, no, you don't, you don't get it. You don't get You don't get it. I want to talk about my mom's death as an idea. It's true, though. It's like I want to talk about it as an idea. It's not actually about me and my grieving process or, or a need for some sort of feedback, at least the sort of paint-by-numbers feedback that people give you, and their hearts mean well. They mean well when they do that. But I've found that even friends, especially people who haven't been through that, don't really know how to respond, and so sometimes people just kind of revert to these automated responses. They offer you support, a nice thing to do, but it's hard to talk about it as an idea, as something that's simply interesting to talk about. But I mean, you can get addicted to this stuff, and that's kind of what I'm getting at here too. When you start engaging people about these subjects, these significant life experiences with mortality, with health with problems you've faced. You can easily kind of get addicted to that way of interacting with people. And I hate to even say it, but it's like this relative I have who, who had a major health crisis, you know, I think that they've kind of become addicted to that. I think they've, they've kind of become addicted to talking about that. And if that's what helps them, good. But I see like... The, this stoicism that, that other people have, I, I see the stoicism that other people have brought with them when dealing with similar issues. And it really gets me thinking. Some people would say that's unhealthy. Oh, you need to engage people. You need to rally the troops. 
I think people are different. I think people are looking for different things. I think people have a different relationship to their own health. But I can't help but go back to my favorite subject in the world, which is American Idol. And how this is a part of that, where you can see where all of this manifested in American Idol. And it's not that American Idol created this. I think American Idol reflected it, where these stories of adversity, these stories of health problems, of struggles, just normal life struggles, being a single parent, having a disability. We can see where that, you know, it's, yeah, it's not that American Idol created that narrative at all, and we've always liked stories of people overcoming something, but we like them a little too much sometimes, where we think that people need that, and when they do experience it, we think that it should become kind of part of their self-promotion, because I think it does become self-promotion, and maybe I'm sick for saying that. But I, I kind of get this fe- that same feeling when I do it. I kind of feel like I'm doing a little self-promo. When I say, today is four years since I quit drinking. I did it through this, this, and this. Oh, my view is this, this, and this. Four years without drinking. I kind of feel like I'm doing self-promotion. And I think I am. I think I am. Maybe that's why it feels cheap to me. Not that what I'm doing is cheap, but maybe the way I'm expressing it is cheap. But uh, there might be somebody who actually needs that. But what is enough? I wonder that a lot. Like, what is enough? Like, I know that when my mom passed away... The condolences didn't help. I appreciated them. I thought it was nice. I'm glad that I was able to talk to people about it. But I don't feel that at any point in time that somebody offering sympathy or condolences actually helped. I think if somebody had been through the same thing, that was more significant to me. And I would rather have people offer condolences than say nothing, of course. I'm not saying that I reject condolences. I'm just speaking very honestly here. I don't know that that actually helped me feel better. And so when you extend that out, I don't think you can ever get enough of that because I don't think that's going to fill the void. And you feel that gravitational pull again, like with December 10th coming up, the two-year anniversary of my mom's passing. I've asked myself, oh, am I, am I going to say something? And I don't really see the need to say anything about her death anniversary. That's a day for me to think about it if and how I want to. And I think it's good to remember somebody. 
on a given day, whether it's their birthday, whether it's their death anniversary, whether it's a random day when you're thinking about them. I think it's good to commemorate someone's life if you, ha if you loved them. But it's all a strange thing to me, and, and maybe other people don't understand what I'm getting at here, which is just when you've been through something significant that shakes the foundations of your existence, I think you do have, at least I have questions about how to handle that, how to engage with other people about that, and whether or not to engage with them at all. Don't forget I pissed my pants tonight. If, if, you, if, you think, if you think for one second that I sound too serious here, don't forget that I pissed my pants like an hour and a half ago. Not even two hours ago. Today, it, it's been one hour, 35 minutes, and 26 seconds since I pissed my pants. And I'm going to let you know tomorrow. It's been 24 hours... 26 minutes and 15 seconds since I pissed my pants. I'm just going to keep it up. But no, you do have these questions. And then when you hear stories about people who handled these things stoically. When something significant happened to somebody or they died and nobody knew they were sick. It's funny the sort of human melodrama that surrounds even that. Where then that becomes the story. I didn't even know he was sick. Oh, we, di we didn't even know he was sick. We didn't even know he was sick. You hear that a lot. With Norm MacDonald passing, you hear a lot of people who cared about him. Also people who didn't know him, but you hear people who cared about him say that, like, you know, he didn't even tell us. We didn't even know. So that kind of becomes a story. There's a story either way. Either the story is... Norm was sick and he, he let everybody know. He posted pictures from the doctor's office and he thanked people. He thanked his fans for sending him well wishes. It's either that, which he didn't do, or it's, I didn't, I didn't even know he was sick. I didn't, I didn't even know he was sick. But it's interesting how we kind of form a story around it either way. Whether that person is still here or whether they're gone. And if he had made it a very public process, like if Norm MacDonald's death, if his road to death had been very public, you probably would have heard things like, we watched his road. We, wa we watched him fight cancer. We were with him. You know, so it's just interesting, though, that, you know, it's that need for stories. And we have stories. Stories are real. While we're here, while we are in the Maya, you know, we have our stories. But we also learn as we live that, you know, there's different ways that we can handle that. There are so many different approaches you can take, and a lot of it's probably just based on your own disposition. And for some people, it's personal. You know, for some of these people, it might be just a personal thing that they don't think they need to talk about with anybody. 
It might not even be philosophical like I'm getting at. Oh, it's very stoic. They didn't want to talk about their illness because it felt cheap. They felt like they were milking it. It might just be they weren't comfortable. There might have been nothing grandiose about what they were thinking. It might have just been like, oh, you know, they felt kind of embarrassed. They felt this or that. Or they feel that medical issues are very personal. kind of like with the vac oh no he's he's talking about the vac you know with the vac like you know it's kind of the same thing it's personal it's kind of weird to me that that's become such a public display i don't look at facebook very often very rarely i'll look at it once in a while the other day i, I looked at it and apparently they're letting kids get vac now whatever i'm not going to be upset i'm not I don't, I don't have an opinion i don't know what the i don't know what this Oh, that was my, my dryer. That was an opinion. My dryer had an opinion letting me know it was done. But uh, with the vac, you know, I, I don't know about, like, giving it to kids. I don't, I don't even know, man. I try to pay attention to what everybody's saying about it. I definitely don't buy into any one single way of thinking when it comes to the vac, which should be pretty clear on here. And, you know, they're giving it to kids now, and I know some people think that's horrible because kids apparently handle coronavi very well. You know, I've heard again and again for the last year, year and a half, that young kids seem to handle coronavi very well. Their bodies seem to handle it relatively well. There's a low mortality rate. But I was talking to a friend of mine who, you know, is very much into the mask and the vac and all that, not obnoxiously, but she cares about all that stuff. And she was like, we were talking, somehow kids came up and she was like, oh, well, kids get hit the hardest. And I was like, huh? I was like, everything I've heard is that kids seem to have the easiest time with it, but I just let it go because it wasn't important. But you can just see that people are going around in the world and there's people out there who are thinking like, oh, kids are the most susceptible, which I thought was the opposite of what was true. And I, I believe that is the case, that the kids are the least, have the least to worry about. But a friend of mine who's all into it all, like in, into the protecting yourself from Coroni, seemed to think the opposite. So it just shows you that people are coming from much different places on this. But anyway, when I hopped onto Facebook... I was actually, I hopped onto it. I was sitting on my computer while I looked. But no, I saw like a bunch of people, because kids are able to get it, like a bunch of people I know with kids were like posting pictures of their kids getting it, posting pictures of their kids afterward. It was as if their kids had gone through confirmation or something. And like the responses were just like, oh, my, like I'm crying. Oh my God, I'm so happy for him. I'm crying. It was like their kids had been baptized. And I'm not even trying to play into the whole, oh, coronavirus become a, a, a religion. Coronavirus become a religion. I think you can make an argument for that. But I'm not even trying to make that point. I'm just saying, like, just seeing this on its own was kind of an incredible sight, given that I don't normally see what people are up to anymore. And it was just people were like, more than one person that I know was posting pictures of their kids just saying like it was a big deal and good for them if that's meaningful to them. I don't, I'm not invested. I'm not invested enough to have an opinion on whether kids should or shouldn't 
but it, it, it did strike me as kind of strange. It did strike me as kind of strange that it was like on display, like your kid's medical procedure was on display. And there's a certain sort of person who's very comfortable inquiring about that. You know, I mentioned in just this last episode earlier tonight, you know, somebody who's just completely all in on that stuff messaged me some earlier this year and was like, have you gotten the vac yet? And when I got that at the time, I kind of thought to myself, I was like, imagine if they were asking me about anything else. Have you gotten your flu shot yet? Have you gotten your vasectomy yet? Have you gotten your uh, your toenails clipped yet? Yeah, I understand they're all not the same, but still, it's just like asking you about something personal. But the whole coronavirus thing, it's really depersonalized our bodies. This collectivism, this need for consensus. This need for total physical and mental agreement by everybody in response to something that isn't just mysterious, but seems to be shrouded in deception as well. Like the origins of it, the exact nature of it. You know, it's like we've, we've kind of gotten used to the idea that... Our bodies are part of a public conversation, and maybe they always are, to some degree. But we've certainly never had conversations like this. And I just don't feel that people should be sending messages to each other asking that. And it's kind of interesting that we've made a display out of it. Because it wasn't just people posting pictures of their children getting it and having gotten it. Here's his band-aid. Look at his band-aid. It's not just things like that. It's also that when people themselves got it, they were broadcasting that. Like, there are people I know who are good people. I like them. But when the, the VAC first became uh, available, they were posting pictures of themselves like, here's me waiting in line. Oh, here's me waiting in line to get the VAC. And I was just like, huh. I guess this is sort of a public event. And when you do that, you get the people who are all in on it being like, oh, you're so cool. Oh, good for you. You're one of the good ones. Oh, you're one of the good ones. Thank you. Oh, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. You get in the vac. There are people who respond. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm only exaggerating slightly. That's a sort of tone. But it's this sort of public... It's, it's a way of engaging with your public. Because we all have our own little public now. And there's people who catalog that. There's people who catalog, like when they see that somebody posted a photo of themselves at the doctor's office waiting to get the VAC. The VAC. When they were waiting, waiting for the doctor to come in the room with a high-powered vacuum and stick it on their face, the vac. No, but w when people are posting like, here's me getting the vac, here's me waiting in line for the vac. You know, when people post shit like that, there's people who are like, 
he's on the good list. He's on the nice list. You know what? I haven't seen so-and-so. I haven't seen so-and-so say anything that's pro-vac. Hmm. Maybe I should text them. That happened during the BLM thing. I know I've mentioned it before, but I had a friend who messaged me and was like, Hey, you want to come to this protest with us? And I just said, you know, I support you. Do I support you. Not that I support what the cause necessarily. But I just said, I support you doing what you're doing, whatever. You know, I mean, I, I knew this person was going to be protesting peacefully. I like this person. I was a little bit offended, though. Because, you know, I, I have a little bit of a psychic ability, I'll say that. And I could feel that this was sort of a test. Are you going to come to the BLM? You going to come to the BLM protests, huh? huh? I kind of got that vibe from it. And I got that vibe from the friend who messaged me asking if I was vacked. Are you? Huh? I'm making a list and I'm checking it twice. Maybe that person didn't even know they were doing that. Maybe I'm invent maybe I'm paranoid. I don't think so. When you look at what's going on, when you look at the way people are thinking, when you look at the way that we have publicized ourselves, I don't think I'm paranoid for thinking that way. And I do think my intuition tells me things. And in, in those cases, I think that my intuition was right, that it was sort of a test to see how I responded, to see if I was in agreement. And you know what? I don't blame somebody. Like, if you're meeting up with somebody, especially when the VAC was believed to be more potent, when the VAC was believed to be more of a solution, I can understand somebody saying, like, well, you know, oh, hey, you want to hang out? Well, are you VAC'd? Regardless of the actual truth about the VAC, I can understand just based on what that person has heard, the impression that person has been given of it, why they would ask that. And I don't consider that nearly as offensive because you're going to be spending time with somebody and it's been hammered through your head for the last year and a half that everybody is a potential carrier of this horrible disease and that the VAC will protect you, even though it's turning out a lot of, a lot of the spread is going on among the VAC. But I guess what I'm getting at is just the way all of this stuff is publicized. And when people get vaxxed, there's a gravitational pull that tells them, like, say something. Tell people. Announce it. Oh, I can't wait. Think about all the people. Think about this for a second. Think about all the people who, while they were waiting to get vaxxed, they're in the waiting room. They're in the, the office. They're waiting for the needle. Oh, the needle's going into their arm. Oh, here comes the choo-choo. Here comes the vaccine choo-choo. It's going into your arm. Say, say, yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Think about like go in their subconscious, if not their active mind. Think about all the people who are probably thinking, I can't wait to post about this. Oh, I can't wait to post about this. Oh, I can't wait to show my friends. I can't wait to show my friends that I'm fact. I 
Can't wait to deliver it to the bell. Oh, yeah. Oh. You know, think about all the people. <laughs> think about all the people who are thinking, like, I can't wait to let the entire world know. And they kind of justify it by, like, this is the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to let everybody else know because that'll encourage more people to do this. Because everything, I'm a little politician. I'm a little politician in everything I do. Everything I do involves telling people, encouraging people, getting them to do the right thing. I'm a little politician and everything I do is a way to get people to do the right thing. That song sucks. Thought I'd have a, I thought I had a good little song in there. It needs a little more work. Just had to do a little, had to workshop it a little bit here. But, you know, there's a lot of people who are, that's gone through their minds. I mean, it's something people do in general, and I don't blame them for it. But there's a lot of people who go through life, and they're like, I can't wait to post about this. I can't wait to share a picture of this. You know, it's a common criticism. It's sort of a an old man criticism of millennials and everything, which is like, they just go to concerts so they can take a picture and show everybody they were there. Look at all those people in the mosh pit. Look at all those mosh... Oh, the, oh my God, there's a guy in the mosh pit with a needle sticking people. No, but they, they just go to concerts so they can take a picture. And, uh, you know, it's part of our life now. That's just part of things. I don't even say that critically. I'm trying not to do any phone shaming when I say that. But there is a part of that, and the criticism is valid. I think it's a little bit... I think people jump to it maybe a little too quickly because i wonder like that's getting off into a different point a different topic but like the sort of person who gets accused of like going to an event that happened during the blm stuff where there was some instagram influencer and like she took a selfie or she had somebody take a picture of her holding a sign at one of the protests and then somebody else took a picture of that because we do live in this meta world Somebody took a picture of the influencer getting her picture taken and they shared that picture and said like she only came for a split second and then she left. Which doesn't that still help your cause? First of all, oh no, she's not as true as us. Oh my God, the Instagram thought. The Instagram thought came to the BLM protest for two seconds just so she should get a picture taken holding the sign, and then she left. Isn't she reaching more people than you are? Even if she was at the event for two seconds, if she's truly an influencer, isn't she influencing a much larger group of people? Isn't she influencing like hundreds of thousands of people to support BLM, even though she was there for just a second to get her photo op? Isn't that what politicians do? Who you love? Isn't that the whole, isn't that like kissing a baby? Isn't that like a politician showing up somewhere for a second to show like support for something? You know, isn't it kind of the same thing? Isn't that kind of what an influencer is? Aren't they kind of a little politician? But it's funny how people have this, this kind of purity test where it's like, oh, she only came for a second. It's like, would you rather have her not support your cause? Would you rather have her support? The opposite cause? Would, she, would you rather have her support the enemy? 
isn't the fact that she showed up at all and had a picture taken there advocating for your cause, isn't that better than if she didn't do it at all? Even if she's a poser, which you are too, by the way. But even if she's a poser, you know, isn't what she's doing, isn't, the, isn't there a net positive to that? And is she really that different from you? You're probably taking pictures. You're probably signaling to all your friends that you're there too. And that's what I'm getting at, which is that so many people experience life, especially in recent years, by thinking like, oh, I'm just here long enough to get a picture. And whether somebody's shameless, like that Instagram thought, Instagram thought, <laughs> uh, whether, whether it's someone who's just shamelessly doing it or whether it's you biding your time so that you can like tactfully take a picture and do the same thing. And you're probably thinking the entire time, oh, I can't wait to take a selfie doing this, but I got to wait so I don't seem like a poser. Years ago, probably close to a decade ago, maybe a little less, I was talking to this guy in Finland. He's a well-known musician, runs a record label. Not a close friend of mine, but a guy that I respect. Had a little, had a back and forth email exchange with him about some different things. And we were talking about this. It was a really great conversation because we were kind of debating. And he's a very intelligent guy in Finland. And he was telling me how there was a concert by the band Blasphemy and how there's a band who is basically a Blasphemy clone. Like it's a band who their entire aesthetic, their entire sound, they just worship the band Blasphemy. There's a bunch of bands like that. But this particular band happened to be at this Blasphemy show watching it. Maybe they opened. They might have played the same show. I don't know. But this guy in Finland was telling me, he's like, oh yeah, that band was there. And when Blasphemy was playing the blasphemy clone band, they were just standing at the front of the stage taking selfies of themselves with blasphemy in the background. And I thought that was so funny because these guys kind of, the band that we were talking about, they kind of posh, I don't know them, but they kind of posture as tough guys, like serious war metal guys with shaved heads and all this. And it was just so funny to me that he saw that, that he saw them standing at the front of the stage just taking selfies of themselves with the band they worship in the background, like not actually experiencing it whole. But, you know, I have sort of mixed feelings on that where, uh, you know, I think that's an experience too. It's not very aesthetically appealing. You know, I know I talked about this in the very first every night to school night. I talked about this again later and loyal listener John, shout out to my friend John. He pointed out, he was like, I was talking about this again, and he was like, oh, this is exactly what you talked about in the very first Every Night's a School Night. I th thank you for remembering. I Thank you for remembering. That, I love that. Um, but uh, he was talking about this. He was like, oh, because I was, I was talking about how even though I'm against phone shaming, and I think a part of us just, to, just has to accept that that's part of our new reality, that people are going around looking at their phones. People are going around thinking about, when do I get to take the picture? When do I get to take the selfie? 
I'm just going to stand here recording everything. You know, even though I think we have to kind of accept that that's our new reality rather than stubbornly criticizing it all the time. It's just not aesthetically appealing. And in the very first Every Night's a School Night, he reminded me that, like, I talked about this because I said, in this stupid future we live in, this pod and pad future, where baby word corporations like Lady Google Gaga run our world, the problem is, like, you couldn't have an attractive painting of this. Like, if someone were to do a painting of an urban street today, you're going to have a bunch of people, like, looking at their phones. Whereas a painting of an urban street, like a classic painting of an urban street, you're going to have gentlemen with umbrellas and cigars and, you know, women with their handkerchiefs. And you're going to look at it and be like, oh, it's 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 a wonderful urban street. and It's a wonderful urban street. Whereas now, if you were to paint that realistically, you know, in New York City today, it's like you're going to have a bunch of people staring at their phones. You're going to have people taking selfies. And it's just not aesthetically appealing. So that's my sort of approach is that it just doesn't seem aesthetically appealing. It's like when you see footage of an event and you see everybody holding up their phones, capturing video footage. And it just it's not very it doesn't look good. And it's not even that I'm against them augmenting their experience with a screen and a camera and a phone and whatever. It's more just that it doesn't look good. It's kind of like when you see people, like when some video surfaces online of a confrontation and there's a bunch of people pointing their phones at each other. Like there's so many videos of people today and they're in some sort of one-on-one confrontation and they both have their phones out videoing each other like instead of having a duel with muskets or having a duel with guns like people just whip out their phones and and just hold their phone up to each other like do something do something meanwhile you look so silly just holding your phones up trying to capture the other person doing something stupid or bad And then everybody around them is doing the same thing. It's like a circle of people who are holding their phones up, capturing video. Meanwhile, the two people in the confrontation often have their phones up. And it's silly. And it's ugly. And uh, it's just, it's how things are. And, And then we're at home looking at it on a screen. Or, or we're looking at it on a phone. You know, we're doing the same thing in our own way. And it is this sort of meta experience. And it is this sort of hall of mirrors. Except instead of a fun house where we're like, oh, look at how goofy I look. Oh, look, this mirror makes me look like I'm 800 pounds. Oh, this mirror looks makes me look like I'm four foot nine. Oh, look at how tall and skinny this mirror makes me look. Instead of that, it's just like dead serious. Like, do something. Do something, punk. Go ahead, make my day. You know, it's like people doing that while holding these phones up to each other. But I've also tried to kind of reconcile that by thinking this is a new way to experience reality, I guess. Because that's, you know, one of those talking points. It's like people aren't even living in the moment. They go to a concert and they're just worrying about taking pictures. People go to a party and they're thinking the entire time about taking pictures so they can post them online. 
And I heard about something, I think it was Jonathan Haidt or one of those like disaffected leftist professors. He mentioned a phenomenon that I wasn't aware of, but apparently they researched it for their book, which I haven't read. So I don't know anything. But I saw an interview with Jonathan Haidt where he talked about that, where he said there was a phenomenon that was going on with Instagram and Snapchat where teenage girls who couldn't go to a party were lending their phone to a friend who was going so that she could take a picture at the party and upload it to the girl's Snapchat who couldn't be there so that it would look like she was at the party. And I believe that. I don't think that's made up. I mean, those guys, they, they're academics. I don't agree with them on everything. But uh, I believe that's true. It's kind of ingenious in a sad way. But a girl who couldn't go to a party still wanted people to think she was there. So she had her friend take her phone and take photos from the party so that they could put that on her Snapchat to make it seem like she was there. Incredible. It's like a magic trick. David Copperfield, you you made it look like an aircraft carrier disappeared. That girl made herself seem like she was at the cool party and she wasn't even there because she had a a magic wand called a phone. Amazing. But that's how people are experiencing the world today. Even a big tough band, I, I was told, was standing there taking selfies of themselves the entire time, probably drunk. But still, they couldn't resist the urge. So we're all, you know, we're pretty much all that Instagram thought influencer. It's like, I can't wait to take the picture so I can share it. But then that applies to this moral posturing, which I think is where it gets sick. It's one thing if it's just your own vanity. It's one thing if it's your own spirit you're dealing with, where it's just like, I want people to think I'm cool. I want people to think that I was at the cool event. But when it gets into this other realm of like, Oh, God, I can't wait to take a picture of myself in line to get the vac. And that people are cataloging this naughty and nice list, which they are. But it's just, and and they're including their children in it. And they're making their medical history just part of the public domain. And we've already given so much of ourselves to the public domain. You know, we've already made our health, or sorry, we've already made so much of our our lives public. And uh, we, we just included people into this world that we live. And that's depersonalized us as well. Even though it's an expression of individuality, it has depersonalized us in, in certain ways. Because, like, you think about all the people who are, like, sitting there on the couch with their boyfriend and their dog, and they think, like, I'm going to have to take a picture of this to show everybody that I'm sitting on the couch with my boyfriend and my dog. I take pictures of my dog and post them online. I do it, too. I'm not, I'm not exempt from this. And there's nothing wrong with doing that. But it's just become part of what we do, where it's, like, even just sitting there, you see it with people online where it's, like, They'll be sitting on the couch at night with their significant other and their pet, and they'll like take a picture of all of them watching 
whatever the new Netflix thing is. And they include other people in that by being like, tonight we're watching uh, Tiger King. Tonight we're here on the couch watching Tiger King. You know, it's like they do that as part of this. It's part of this way of engaging people. So it's really not that much of a stretch that that becomes like, I'm about to get vacked. Look at me in the doctor's office. And then that applies to other health issues, too. Where it's like somebody who's going through another health issue includes everyone in the process. And maybe part of that's inspiring. I think for some people it is. Look at what I'm going through. Maybe part of it's to get support. Look at what I'm going through. I'm not trying to trivialize anything. But then I look at people like Norm MacDonald and Bill Hicks, and you know Bill Hicks was an earlier time, but still part of the same way of thinking, the same mindset as Norm MacDonald, where then it's the opposite, which is that I'm not including anybody in this process. This is my own deal. And I think where this stuff becomes sick and bad is that including other people in the public domain increases pressure on everybody to do that. And that the pressure only increases, that tension only increases when now the thought is the people who aren't doing this are bad. And I don't want to be bad. So I'm going to share my health with everybody. I don't know. It's a wild world, man. The psychology of it all fascinates me. The social psychology. And the way that we catalog people, other people's actions and behavior without even knowing it. You know, we end up cataloging other people's stances and behavior based on what they share or don't share. And I think in making yourself part of this public conversation, making your body part of this public conversation, we start taking on this assumption that other people's bodies should be part of that conversation too, even when their bodies don't need to be. You know, somebody else's decision to get the vac or not is nobody's business. If they're mandated to do it by their employer, which I don't agree with, but if they are mandated to to get the vac by their employer, that should be between them and their employer. And all of the employees who work there are going to know who's still there and who's not. So there's going to be kind of an assumption that everybody there has got it. But it's not something that other people need to know. But it bothers people when they don't know. It bothers people when they don't know whether you did the thing you're supposed to do even if it has no impact on them. Like talking about my friend who's been harassed by an old friend of his for not getting the vac. It's not, it's, his friend lives in a different state. They have no plans to visit each other. 
but it's just the fact that my friend is not going along with the same program. It's created some sort of dissonance between them, but it's a, it's a false dif- dissonance. It's like an artificial fog. It's like a smoke machine. And you can see in that interaction and why that interaction has been so fascinating to me is because, and I've talked about it a few times now, is because I've seen it develop. This is an interaction between one of my closest friends and one of his oldest friends. And he's told me quite a bit about it. And over the last year or so, I've gotten updates on kind of how their interactions have evolved or de-evolved, degenerated. And it's really interesting to me because that's just a microcosm. That's going on everywhere. The interaction they've had over this is going on everywhere between all kinds of people. It's going on on a macro level between groups within our society, but it's going on between individuals on that microcosmic level. And I think that my friend's friend has gotten convinced that our mutual friend, that his health is of is public property that's that seems to be kind of at the heart of all this and i don't know that any anybody would really disagree because that's sort of the the line that you get that's sort of the line that people give about all this which is that well your health now is a concern to everybody because if you don't get this shot you are now a risk to everybody you're now part of the problem. And so I don't even know that anybody would really disagree about that idea because the idea is basically that your, your body doesn't completely belong to you because your body might carry something that impacts everybody. That's kind of steel manning the logic that people use. But I don't think that's where they're coming from emotionally. I think we've really depersonalized each other in all this. But we've depersonalized ourselves too. And when you depersonalize yourself, it becomes that much easier to depersonalize other people. By depersonalizing yourself, you just naturally start depersonalizing other people. And some of this starts in just how you broadcast your own health to begin with. You know, whether or not you kind of make your health problems, getting away from coronavirus, I've said enough about the VAC for one day, getting away from all that, just the way that you broadcast your own journey through the medical industry. Some people get a life-threatening disease and it becomes almost like a brand. They almost become addicted to letting people know about it. I think they feel a compulsion to talk about it. They feel that pull, that gravity that I keep talking about. Because what is alcoholism? A medical issue, among other things, 
But at its core, you could call it a medical issue. My reasons for quitting drinking were not entirely medical, but heavily influenced by my own health and the damage I was doing to my well-being. And I feel this need sometimes to be like, I should say something. I should say something about it. It's everybody's business. And to think about somebody like my grandfather who went through the same thing many decades ago. He existed in a different time. When he was in AA, it was far more anonymous. My family knew he was in it, but it wasn't a part of his public identity. And even if he wanted to be open about it, which he apparently wasn't, you know, he did kind of hold true to the anonymity of it all. But even if he wanted to be public about it, what avenues would he have to broadcast it? He didn't have a podcast. He didn't have social media. He could call somebody, I guess. He could write a letter to the newspaper. But the option wasn't even available to broadcast it to that many people, to make it a part of this public persona. The same is true for anything else that was going on with people. It was limited. So we don't even know how people from the past would have responded you know, we are a product of our time. And that's for the same reasons. That's why I don't come down too hard on people for bringing their phones into everything. Oh, in my grandfather's day, we never would have taken selfies at concerts. My grandpa used to go see Frank Sinatra and he never once took a selfie. Well, it wasn't even available. You know, today it's available. And guidelines really haven't been written in about that. And part of the experience for some people is taking the selfie with the stage in the background and the blurry little glob of color that is a live performer. Part of the experience for some people is that, is being able to take the picture and get a bunch of people who are like, wish I was there. Oh, I wish I was there. Oh, I bet I'm. Oh, dude, I'm so jealous that you got to see uh, John Cougar Mellencamp. Oh man, that's so awesome that you were there. For some people, that's part of the experience. It is public. It is interactive. And you you can't necessarily compare it to the past. And honestly, if you were to ask that person, like, if you were able to, it's one thing if somebody is addicted to their phone. It's one thing if somebody's addicted to social media. But getting beyond that, getting beyond, like, the discipline, getting beyond the, the compulsion that some people have to use that. If you were just to measure their level of enjoyment, if, they're in, if they enjoy it more, if they enjoy going to an event more because they get to commemorate it through photos of themselves there and they can then share those online 
It might be less aesthetically appealing when you look around the auditorium and you see a bunch of people holding up their phones and taking pictures of themselves and this and that. It might take away some of the aesthetic value. But if those people are increasing their genuine enjoyment of the event, you know, I don't know. And I mean, and you look at the past where tons of people would go to concerts and you have to ask, like, how many people truly loved the band? How many people just went to concerts 30 years ago, 40 years ago, just to be able to tell people they went to the concert? People did that back then, too. Even if they couldn't just take a photo of themselves, even if they couldn't stand there like a fool with their hand up holding a phone videotaping the concert, you know, how many people went back then just to be able to say they went? We know people have always done that. People haven't fundamentally changed. Our motivations haven't fundamentally changed. The way we experience things, sure, okay. The aesthetic value, sure. But I don't know that people's motivations have fundamentally changed, and it's people's motivations that we seem to question the most. And that's what this entire episode is about, is people's motivations. Someone like Norm MacDonald, who I don't know what his motivations were for keeping silent about his health, but that's what he did. And for someone like me, it makes me wonder what his motivations were. It makes me curious. It makes everybody curious because we're not used to that. We're not used to somebody just zipping it up when they're dying. And uh, then when we see people do the opposite where they broadcast their health problems where they feel compelled to reference their health problems over and over again. You know, I think we naturally can look at that and kind of question the motivations, even though we kind of get it. We still think about the motivations when we actually consider what's going on and what people are doing. When we look at the way that someone experiences a live event, whether they stand there and just watch it or whether they bring their phone out. We think about the motivation for doing that. And for somebody who, who you know, posts a picture of themselves, get in the vac. Oh, the doctor's bringing the choo-choo. Uh, here comes the, the choo-choo with the needle on the end right into my arm. You know, someone who does that, like... Some of those people might just be genuinely happy. They might think this is salvation. I can go back to normal life. I don't have to worry about coronavirus. Some people might just, that might be the most pure motivation for doing it. But there's plenty of people too, and they might want to commemorate that with a photo. Here's the moment when I, I attained salvation, when I was saved from the coronavirus curse. You know, some people, that might be their motivation. With other people, it's very clear that they want to let people know they're good. They're doing the right thing. To me, it's not that different from like on Ash Wednesday or whatever that's called. When Catholics get ash smudged on their faces and they take pictures and show that off. 
Why should that be a public event too? To them it has spiritual significance. But, uh, you know, I don't see it as that much different. You know, because I, th- I used to see that sometimes where like on Ash Wednesday, all the Catholic kids are getting, getting smudged. They want you to know they got smudged too. So motivation is a big part of this, and that's something we're constantly contending with. We're constantly contending with other people's motivations, and people have different motivations. And even when they have the same motivations, those motivations manifest in different ways. I think it's interesting to think about. You know, it's, it's only through people's motivations that we really come to understand human psychology. It's how we understand what's important to people or what they think is important. We come to an understanding about uh, what people are trying to get out of life if they even know. Children can run free. 